It's Spencer Hughes, and welcome to another episode of Hughes from the Heart, our positivity podcast here coming at you from the woods of Mason County, Washington, in the south sound of the Evergreen State. And we talk about mindfulness, minimalism, meditation, all these things that are really the important staples of life that we oftentimes forget in our busy, uh, hectic lives. And one of the things we focus on as well, good people doing good things in a good world. And I think there are far more good people than bad people. The mass media, for some reason, would rather take the minority of bad people and put a magnifying glass and a microscope over them and make you think the whole world is falling apart when I think in the whole scheme of things the whole world is coming together I think it's taking a long time but I think we're coming together more than we're falling apart contrary to the evidence in the uh, daily news and there's a uh, anniversary coming up 17th of October I uh, am doing this podcast on the 16th and tomorrow is the 31st anniversary of one of the well the biggest earthquake that I ever lived through growing up all those years in San Francisco California the Loma Prieta earthquake it had happened October 17th, 31 years ago. My father and I were on our way to the World Series. The It was the Bay Bridge Series, the Oakland A's, San Francisco Giants. We were close to Candlestick Park, which has since been demolished. And I grew up going to that stadium. And I was so excited that we got tickets to, to go to the World Series. And it was historic to have you know the, the Battle of the Bay going on. The earthquake struck on our way. We were five minutes away from Candlestick Park. The uh, car started swaying. And at first, we thought it was a flat tire. We kept going. And then we saw the pole moving back and forth, the light posts and stuff, and realized it was an earthquake. But growing up in San Francisco, earthquakes happened all the time, so we had no idea what we were facing. We saw no evidence of destruction. We continued to Candlestick Park, went to our seats, and this is in an age before Twitter, before Instagram, before Facebook, before everybody Snapchatting each other, all the news as it happens. We had no idea. We were kind of piecing together what was happening. Players were on the field. The families were on the field. People were panicking. Uh, One out of every hundred people maybe had a little black and white television set that they were watching the live coverage of of fires and flames coming from the Marina District in San Francisco. And that's where we start our story here, the Marina District, where Jerry Shannon, a now retired San Francisco firefighter, saved a life and really, really engaged in heroism at a really, really horrible time in San Francisco history as it was unfolding. And just a little disclaimer here, so nobody says, well, hey, isn't he related to you? Well, yes, he's a cousin. And uh, my wife's cousin, Jerry Shannon, is our guest here. Here on the podcast, and I'm so honored to have you as part of, of my family now, Jerry, and what an honor it is to have you on Hughes from the Heart. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, and for me, it's, it's an honor to be on here. Well, I appreciate yeah. you, and I, I can't wait to talk about some other stuff with you, too, like um, your experiences with mindfulness and meditation, and you're such a, a great role model for me, honestly, and for many people out there beyond your heroism on that day 31 years ago on the 17th. How long had you been a San Francisco firefighter at that time? I'm 19 years. Wow. So you were a veteran firefighter. Were you, you were a captain? No, no, I was just a firefighter at the time. Tell us how this played out, because I remember I told you where I was when this thing struck. Where were you before you even got to the scene there in the marina? What is your memory of where you were when the earthquake hit? I was in the firehouse uh, on Gerald Street by the Produce Mart, which is right down 3rd Street from Candlestick Park, where the World Series is. And uh, we were actually sitting watching TV, waiting for the World Series to start and cooking dinner. And firefighters can sure make dinner, I'm telling you. You guys are the best cooks in the world. So that got put on hold. That got put on hold because tragedy struck. What were your thoughts having, I'm sure, weathered many earthquakes? Was this one obviously stronger to you? Or what was the initial? I mean, before you even knew of any of the destruction, before even the first call started coming in, everything's 
rocking and rolling and shaking. What were your thoughts? This was just another day in San Francisco, or did you know right away this was something different? I started to think it was like the one I was in the seventh grade, and there was an earthquake, and I remember looking out the window and watching this brick chimney slide off the roof in the middle of the street. And when I went home, some glasses had fallen out of the cabinet. But when when this hit, the look on everybody's, everybody just kind of froze. And I looked out the back door, and the cars were actually bouncing across the parking lot. And then it just kept shaking. The pictures were falling off the wall. And, I mean, it got more intense, which I've never felt before. It just picked up in intensity. Yeah, I remember. I had never been in a car before at, a t- at the time. And it, it the car was swaying and probably doing a little of the bouncing that you witnessed. And I, we just thought we had a flat tire at first. That, before we saw the, the, the lamppost swaying, we just thought we had a flat tire. That's what it felt like to us. And we turned on the radio. The radio stations were cut off. I'm sure radio towers affected or toppled down or whatever was happening, but we couldn't get anything on the radio. So we were right there by candlestick. We just kept going. It was still business as usual. We thought, oh, okay, it shook. It stopped. There's no big cavities in the roadway, so we're just going to keep going. And that's when we found out the extent of the devastation. And one of the scenes that everybody, I'll never forget on the little TVs, you remember, I mean, we're old enough, Jerry, to remember life. A lot of the listeners on Hughes from the Heart may be too young to remember the days before social media, but we didn't have Twitter. We, we weren't being updated every four seconds by ABC News and NBC News and the local channels as to what exactly was happening. Nowadays, we know the magnitude within five seconds. We know where, you know, there's death and destruction and specifically where things are happening. But back then, we were clueless. And if it wasn't for the random television sets people used to take to the ball games back then, we wouldn't have even known what was going on there. But one of the images I'll never forget were flames coming out of buildings and entire neighborhood buildings collapsed specifically in the marina district now for people and most of our listeners aren't from san francisco or maybe have never been the marina district is a very nice neighborhood along the water kind of on the way to the golden gate bridge to kind of give people an idea it's it's a few minutes away from fisherman's wharf it's a very desirable place to live many multi-million dollar houses that took the brunt of it I'm not an engineer. I know you're not, but you have experience with this probably a lot more than most of us. The land there, for people that don't know, is landfill, correct? And that's part of what the problem was structurally in terms of these houses collapsing the way they did. That that area, if you look at maps of San Francisco 100 years before, it, it was never there. I mean, that was water, right? Yeah, it was all the way from Bay Street out to the marina was filled in at the bottom of the hills to make a flat area to build. So those houses weren't exactly on bedrock, uh, as you know as some houses are. So they took the brunt of the damage. Tell us about the call to the marina, and that is where your heroic act took place 31 years ago. We, um, it, it, you know, we were updated because the radio, the, the chatter on the radio, they turned the radios up and they opened the doors. Uh, the power was out, so we had to open them manually. And as soon as I looked out in the street, there was cracks running down the middle of the street, openings, and there was water from the water mains that had burst coming up through the cracks and running down the street. And all the glass from the windows of the second-story buildings were out in the middle of the street. So we knew right away it, it was there was some damage. I just had no idea how much would have been in the marina. What causes these things? Just for people that don't know, I, I don't know how many fires are started. Uh, I, I know that you are trained in this sort of thing, but what are the main things that cause? Because when you think of an earthquake, you think of what happened on the double decker, you know, in the in the East Bay, and several people died there, and many people died with things collapsing on top of them. But of course. A lot of people outside of San Francisco and unknowledgeable of our history may not know that the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, a bulk of that damage was fire, 
related, right? Not even so much. I mean, obviously, the whole city got leveled, most of it. But the fires were things that a lot of people might be surprised about, like why fire involved with an earthquake? What what exactly happened in the marina for so many buildings to, to catch on fire like that? Well, you're correct. The majority of the destruction in 1906 was from the fire because they had no way of stopping it. Van Ness ended up being a fire stop. But in the marina, they, they, the gas mains broke also. Anytime there's that size of fire, there's an accelerant usually. And this was natural gas. When those, the building actually filled up with natural gas and then hit a water heater, some open flame, and the whole building, t- it just blew up. It just took off. It was gone by the time we got there from top to bottom. And a whole, like, square block was on fire already. It turned into a fifth alarm immediately. But we also, with the broken water mains, when we got there, you couldn't get water out of the hydrants. What a disaster. So what do you do in that case as a firefighter? You, your weapon, aside from your, your wit and your experience, is, is water, obviously. So what happens when the water mains break and you get to a site that's on, I mean, it just seems like such a stressful, obviously a stressful situation, but compounding that with the fact that the water mains broke, what do you do? Well, to preempt that, I wanted to say that when we got called to the fire, we're out by candlestick. We're at the complete different, the end of town. So we had to drive all the way. Just hearing that, we thought it was incorrect that they they miscalled the uh, truck dying to the marina. So that was another indicator. And then on the radio, as we were driving over, you could hear people going, we're on Bluxem Street, you know, whatever the engine was, eight engine. We have people trapped, uh, brick wall collapsed, brick building, and they had five people actually trapped inside. And those those were the people that were getting killed were the people trapped then in those buildings. Another indicator, and you don't hear people on the radio with their, with their voices that high. It gets to be just part of the job, but there was such excitement or, or fear or amazement on the radio from these officers reporting in from all these engines. There weren't any trucks left in the city that weren't at an incident. There were 27 incidents going on at once. Wow. So we, and that's why we, how we got called to the marina. Wow. I was going to say, so for people that don't know, again, a little bit of geography, San Francisco, for the size city that it is, it, almost a million people, I think, by now, it's a seven by seven mile city, so it's not one of the biggest geographically speaking, miles wise. But you're right, Candlestick Park, where that used to stand. If you had to get somewhere, I mean, I used to drive for Lyft part time, and if I got a call from one there, that would be considered a long drive in. But all these engines were just dispatched all over the place, and everybody was just running harried, and obviously, you know, not a lot of resources to go around. How long? Did it? I mean, it's probably the longest minutes of your life, probably uh, not counting the minutes you were helping this woman we're going to talk about soon here. What did that feel like, that ride from Candlestick all the way to the marina? Was it? Did it seem fast in your mind, or did it just seem to take forever? Just watching people standing out in the streets looking at their houses. But actually, uh, it was amazing to watch the citizens, like, waving people through. No one, there wasn't anybody... Uh, trying to cut anybody off. All the lights were, were da- down because the electricity was out. There was no stoplights. And everybody was being really, really polite and helpful to each other, which was nice to see. It was like uh, a New Year's Day or something where everybody's just, there's Christmas Day where everybody's in a mood to uh, to help each other. That reminds me a little bit of, of 9-11, really, where everybody was just kind of nice to each other, which unfortunately didn't last, but uh, it was nice while it was happening, and I'm sure it made your already difficult job easier, you know. 
if you could say that, I guess. Yeah, it, it was really nice to see. It was a good feeling. It, um, when we got to the marina, we were calling for people trapped on Cervantes. And as soon as we pulled up to the building, the chief waved us, uh, keep going, head down that way towards Palace of Fine Arts. And I'm going, well, Jesus, there's people trapped. And we made the turn and looked, and, and we could see the fifth alarm and how, I mean, it looked like a bomb, well, a bomb did go off, you know, sort of, because it, it was just nothing but flame up into the sky. And then when we got down there, we watched the engine that was in front, 41 engine, trying to get water, and there wasn't, and they were dragging lines, you know, blocks. And so the ingenuity of the firemen, somebody dropped a line into the pond in front of the Palace, palace of Fine Art. Um, a suction line, and they were able to suction water up into that engine. Wow! That through I didn't line. know that. I didn't know that some of the water came from that. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, I mean, it was a great move because it, it gave them enough water then to at least start the rescue, kind of knock the fire down a little bit so you could get into the buildings. Now, when you got to that building, were you at that point trying to what was the primary thing you were there obviously to, to did you know at that point it was kind of like a search and rescue or you hadn't heard the woman's voice yet you called out right to see if anybody was trapped under that particular debris yeah the truck is search and rescue the engines pump the water that's suppression and the, and the trucks are ventilation and search and rescue so that's what we were called for that's what we started doing immediately we helped a little bit with the lines and then we immediately went out into the buildings where that where people were we figured we're trapped at the seat of the fire and started going from there. And you called out, right? And at first, what happened? You didn't hear anything? You didn't hear anybody calling back? No, we, we, we looked in a, uh, a building, and then when we got to that building, it seemed like everybody had gotten out, and the, and the police and pg e were getting everybody out of the neighborhood. In fact, they didn't want us to go into that building because they were saying there's gas in all those buildings through this window because the, the building had collapsed a four-story building that pancaked down to the middle of the street to one it was just one story wow it spread out like dominoes so when i uh, yelled in nothing and i yelled again and i thought i heard a real faint voice and then a tapping she'd taken a metal bar and was tapping on her bed the metal frame of the bed and i that's what i heard first and what was your initial instinct what do you do by the way through your training when there are I mean, this is something, obviously, you train, and I don't know, with, with training in San Francisco, if it's different because you are susceptible to earthquakes in tandem with fires, but I would imagine going into a burning building trying to get somebody out is far different from a four-story building that's collapsed to the ground. I mean, that's got to be something that is hard to practice for, I guess. I mean, it's not a typical routine rescue, correct? I mean, that's something that you'd probably ever had to face? No. But they have a, a confined space rescue program that you go through training. And in the, in the towers, intense. There's a couple of months of where they try to cover everything. Of course, they can't, everything you can run into. But um, they do teach you some techniques for rescue. And so what did you, what was your initial, the adrenaline obviously was probably pumping from the time this whole thing started. But what, what was going through your heart and mind at that moment when you realized there was somebody trapped there? Uh, to tell you the truth, what do I do now? I mean, looking in there, all the floor joists from the three floors above were coming, were came down. It was about three feet high, and uh, just nothing but a crushed bed, couches, and boxes. There didn't look like there was any egress. There was no way in or out. 
Well, that's the thing, too, is you know someone's there, and now you're thinking, well, how do I get to them? They could be two feet away from you, but it doesn't help if you've got tons of, of building on top of everything. Yeah, it, it was a kind of like, okay, there's somebody in there. Is there any way? It didn't look like there was any way to get her out. So what did you do? How did you, how did went, you get in there? I went back to Captain, uh, the captain and said, hey, I heard a voice in there. And he goes, okay, so <laughs> what are you going to do? I'm not ordering anybody into that building. Because PG&E was right in front saying, you know, if you go in there and start a chainsaw or something, a spark could put this whole thing off and you'll have another one. Because we were exactly right across the street from the fifth alarm. I mean, the heat from that. But uh, I just said, I'd like to give it a try. So Captain Nolan said, okay, go ahead. And that's when I got a chainsaw and just I just started cutting floor joists. I had to take my helmet off and get on my belly, crawling with the chainsaw out in front of me because there was no room to sit up or stand up. And just cut out in front. My arms were out in front with the chainsaw going, and you know there wasn't any spark, no no explosion. So I just kept going. I can't even imagine this, Jerry. That you have scenarios here. You have the scenario: if you don't go in or attempt to go in, this person will most likely perish, either more weight falling on them or through injuries or something. And if you do go and attempt, you could lose your life as well. You're a family guy, you're married with kids, and what what goes through your mind in your line of work when this sort of thing happens? What, what flashes through your mind? I know it sounds kind of a dumb question and cliche, but what goes through the mind of a firefighter facing this kind of a scenario when you know that if you do nothing, the person that's calling out for help could die, and if you go in, you might not ever see your family again? There was a point where I, I was cutting through, there was so many... Uh, so far to go that the chainsaw went dull so i crawled back and handed the chainsaw out to the crew that was trying to put blocks and and jacks out in front to make a tunnel of egress of course the guy the captain in charge of that said you know it wouldn't have done any good and they were worried about aftershocks that they keep saying aftershocks aftershocks if you get an aftershock the whole thing's coming down which is not what you want to hear but when I called, I gave him the chainsaw, I had a minute to sit back against the, the wall and think. And I go, I wonder who, how, who's going to tell my kids or how they'll tell my kids. Oh and gosh. ironically, uh, my wife, Deidre, was sitting at home with the kids, and they were watching the Channel 5 helicopter, which was above the fire. And they said, do you think Daddy's there? And she said, oh, yeah, but he'll be careful. Uh, so wow. all of that stuff is what you have to blank your mind to and just breathe and, and think that I've been in this situation before and I've always gotten out of it. I'm getting, I'm getting goosebumps from this. This is just uh, an amazing story that thankfully ended well. You ended up rescuing this lady. How old was this lady? Do you remember what her age she was? was? 55, 55 years old and a wonderful person. Now, did she lose any family that, w- that wasn't so lucky in the building or did she live alone or do you know anything about that? I've heard you in other interviews talk about how she reached her hand out to you, and that gives me goosebumps, too. That must have been a very emotional moment when you have 
a victim of an earthquake in a collapsed building on top of her holding your hand and tell us what happened there because you had to let go obviously because you had to go get help and get back in there to get her out of there but that must have been one of the hardest things to do was to let go of that hand well she wouldn't let go i mean i reached my hand over it they started to put water on the building because the building right you know we were part of a whole block full of buildings and the one right next door took off so it started burning the building we were in and she realized it you know i'm going nothing you know we're going to be fine but as it got hotter and brighter and they started pouring water on it it was coming down she said you guys are going to drown me before you get me out Hmm. of here so i took my turnout coat off and slipped it under the beam and then she grabbed it she grabbed my hand and i said okay i'll I'll be right back i got to get another chainsaw and she wouldn't let go. I said, I promise you I'll be back. She was talking and still holding my hand. I said, I, I got to go. We'll be out of here having a cup of coffee in a half hour, and I promise you I'll be back. She said, oh, a couple more things. I said, I promise you I give my word I'll be back. And you were. She got out. She lived another 20 years. Is that right? Yes. Wonderful person. And she said, the next day when I saw her in the hospital, she goes, it was just stuff. She lost everything. It's just stuff. She had a great philosophy about the whole thing. And even when she was dying, we, we of course, we saw her a lot Thanksgiving and Christmas because she had no family and no place to go. And the, the day she, in the hospital, she made put me in charge of her medical care, and she said, don't let him cut anymore. They kept cutting her. She never really healed from the crushed pelvis and hip. Um, parts of her legs off and she just said don't let him cut anymore so my wife set her room up with her favorite opera records and um, flowers and stuff and when I went there it was emotional and she just took my hand again and said hey I had 20 years on the house wow just it's an amazing story Jerry and I would love to have you on again sometime. I wanted to talk about kind of your experiences with uh, meditation and mindfulness and stuff. I'd love to have you on another episode just to focus on that if you'd come on with me again. Sure. That, that I mean, it was a life-changing experience. I mean, I was a bartender in a bar and, you know, drinking and playing softball, and that all changed. It's just unbelievable. Let's 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 determine we're going to chat again and talk about that stuff. But I, I want to just thank you for your heroism. I want to thank... You know, when we think of firefighters in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, and in California the last few years, it's been these devastating fires that are just ravaging the Golden State and the Pacific Northwest as well. But I I don't know how to thank you enough. I uh, have a firefighter also, another member of the family, my godfather, uh, Frank, was a firefighter for many years in San Francisco out in uh, the Potrero Hill District. And I... I, I don't even know how you guys do what you do and what you, how you did what you did. I don't think I have that level of heroism or courage in me to be able to engage in that day in and day out where you put your life on the line in a world where people idolize people bouncing a ball up and down and, and making millions of dollars hitting a ball. And they, they, they get accolades for hitting a home run, but they're getting paid $18 million to do it. You guys are the real heroes. I mean, you guys and ladies go out there and put your lives on the line, and we don't thank you enough. I don't think we we thank you enough. So I want to thank you for what you did and what you did for all those years. You're retired now and thankfully safe, and God bless you for what you did and all the 
young men and women who are going through the academy now and who will be the firefighters of tomorrow and all the men and women on the front lines battling these blazes every year. I just, I, we can't thank you enough, Jerry. Well, I, I mean, you're welcome and I appreciate it. And, and truthfully, it's a job. It's, you're an insurance policy and, and you pay off when you're supposed to pay off. I, I just did what I was supposed to do. I just did the job. I'm not a real brave guy. I'm not a hero. I'm a rich firefighter. No. A lot of us will disagree with that, sir, and I appreciate you being with me. And I, I just, to add a little bit of, of levity in this, when they cast Scott Valentine to play you in the movie adaptation, this story was so big, folks, that they made, a, I mean, this is not just, you know, me telling you this story. This was a big thing. He saved a life. It was a tragedy, the Loma Prieta earthquake that happened 31 years ago. They made a television movie out of this, correct? And Scott Valentine played you? Yeah, after the shock was the name of the movie. That was another flattering thing. Yeah, nice guy. That's pretty cool. Now, I, I've always liked him, and a lot of people who may not know him, he, he played many, many roles, but he played Mallory's boyfriend, Nick, on Family Ties. That's kind of a way a lot of people think immediately who Scott Valentine is, but he is a, a very great actor. What was it like to have him... First of all, what was it like when you found out they were going to make a movie out of your heroic act and that they cast him? Were you thinking, oh, come on, I want Clint Eastwood? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, it was unbelievable that they were making a movie out of me because, you know, usually this thing, you wake up in the morning and it's over. You move on to the next thing. But it was in the New York Times. And um, that uh, we actually flew him up. He told me his dream was to tiller a truck. So he flew up to the firehouse and we had him for dinner. And then we took the truck out. I was in the back with him. The tiller's the back end of the long ladder truck. Okay. And so he was sitting in that seat. I was standing, and he, he got to actually tiller the uh, the truck as we drove around. So he was said it was a dream come true for him. Wow. Jerry, what an honor uh, to talk with you, an honor to have you in the family. Thank you for what you did that day 31 years ago and all the things that we're not thanking you for, all the other things that you did that kind of get lost in the shuffle of big events like this one. It's not always just, it's never just one thing. It's just the years and years of dedication that you put into this. And God bless you. Thanks a lot. And thanks for being with us here on Hughes from the Heart to talk about it. You're welcome. And the honor is all mine. Thank you. We'll talk again soon, okay? And we'll talk about mindfulness and meditation and Buddhism and a lot of cool things that I was hoping to talk with you on, but I think it's probably better we do a self-contained one on that and this sure. for the anniversary of the Loma Prieta earthquake. Hard to believe. What's that like? I'll leave this. I'll leave you with this, Jerry. What what is it like? Does it feel like thirty-one years? Does it feel like less time? Does it feel like fifty years? What does it feel like to you? Unbelievable that this much time has gone by since that happened, especially talking about it. But it also seems like another lifetime. Well, thank you, sir, for sharing the story with us here on Hughes from the Heart, and we'll talk again.